If you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 7, we'll be starting in verse 45. The Word of God says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went on to the mountain, to, went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw all him they saw him, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gerenaset and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's day and the opportunity to hear from your word. We ask that this morning through Dan's voice, you would help us to hear and apply the word to our hearts and minds. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we find ourselves in a familiar spot here in Mark's gospel accounts as the disciples find themselves in a familiar spot in the middle of the storm, out in the boat in the storm, in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of frustration, in the middle of the unknown. The disciples aren't there because of some really stupid choices. They're not there because of disobedience. But they are there by the will and plan of the Lord. You see it in the beginning of our passage in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go. Jesus directs his disciples in this way because he is going to reveal himself to them in a way that can only be learned and understood in the midst of the storm. Even though those disciples won't totally get it now, they will eventually. And Jesus will show himself to be powerful and will show himself to be compassionate to his disciples in the midst of the storm. And so the disciples are going where they didn't intend to go in order that Christ might produce in them what they cannot produce by themselves. And as disciples of Christ now, we should hear that and kind of put ourselves in the boat. As disciples of Christ, we are often going to go places, be in situations we did not plan, we did not ask for, we do not intend to be, that in those moments, Christ can produce in us things that we cannot produce or achieve by ourselves. And we'll see that in the midst of the storm, Jesus goes to his disciples. He goes to them, self-giving powerful, compassionate Savior goes to them. 
We've just finished the episode of the feeding of the 5,000. If you were with us last week, um, we talked about now we're up to the episode on walking on water, as you just heard read for you. If there's two well-known miracles, that would be, it would be these two. Probably the most well-known or familiar, familiar miracles that you would, you would hear, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. In fact, walking on water has almost become synonymous with the miraculous or the impossible. Perhaps you've been complaining about something at some point, someone's asked you to do something unreasonable, and you say something like, what, do you expect me to walk on water? <clears throat> it's entered our language in that way. I, I read or heard about this interview and was able to find it this week, but in the late 60s, there was an interview with Lyndon Johnson, and it was coming towards the end of his presidency. He had taken over, of course, after the death of JFK, and then towards the end of his next term, and he was bemoaning the fact that in his mind, he had accomplished what no one else had ever accomplished. He had done amazing things, and yet nobody appreciated it or cared. And so he's bemoaning this fact, and, and in the interview, he, he says this, he goes, I have accomplished more with more people than anyone has expected or acknowledged. In my presidency, I have broke down every door. I have walked on water. He's done the impossible. He finishes actually with kind of a clever comment. I thought it was funny. Um, he says, if one morning I woke and walked on water across the Potomac River, the headline that afternoon would read, the president can't swim. <laughs> that idea of walking on water, just as it becomes sort of trite in culture, we use it in this sort of saying, or perhaps because we've become familiar with the story, we can read walking on water and almost skip over just the mere fact of the glory and the power of Jesus Christ in that moment. To walk upon the water to get to his disciples. The word that is going to be used there is upon, walk upon the water. Mark takes specific care that it is on top of the water that he walks. There's no sort of natural explanation for it. While that won't be the, the main theme is the walking on water, I don't want to just skip past it as, oh yeah, 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 of course. Mark has taken care that as Jesus teaches and as Jesus interacts with people and as he describes himself, there is no neutrality or middle ground with Jesus. Either he is who he says he is or you reject him. He can't just be a nice guy, a good teacher, one of many ways to improve your life. And by walking on the water, he shows indeed he, he is different than all of creation. In fact, all of creation serves him. All of nature serves him not one square inch over creation that Jesus would not claim this is mine. So let us get the correct picture of Christ in our mind as someone who is awe-inspiring, as we'll see here, fear-inspiring, full of absolute power, and yet total compassion and care and loving-kindness. Let's not create a lesser Jesus, but allow the text to speak to indeed to who he is. 
Well, in the text directly, you see he's fed the 5,000. Immediately after, there's kind of this groundswell of excitement around Jesus. And so with a lot of urgency, he disperses the crowd. He gets the disciples into a boat and out to sea, and he heads for the hills. John gives us a bit more insight into this, and that, that the groundswell was like a revolutionary one. They want to come and make them him their revolutionary king. He's come as a suffering servant, not as a revolutionary king. And so he, he, before this happens, and perhaps even the disciples are misunderstanding it, he's, he breaks up the crowd, he sends them off in a boat, and then Jesus retreats to the mountain, retreats to the hill to pray, to spend time alone with God. It's interesting, this text is going to speak to the divinity of Jesus, that indeed he is God, but first Mark highlights here his humanity. That in this moment, he needs to seek the face of his father. Three times in Mark, we see this happen. Early on in chapter one, we saw at the beginning of his ministry, where he spends time alone with the father before he launches into ministry. We see it here. We're going to see it for a third time, leading up to the passion of Jesus Christ. And each time he's getting ready to walk into a, a difficult moment and he is, there is misunderstanding around him and he is setting straight his mission as the God-man, as the suffering servant. And so he goes to his father. And again, not the main point, but just an aside before we move too quickly away from it. If the sinless son of God... And his moment of humanity and weakness needs to seek the Father's face, to be clear about his mission, to be bold, to follow the Father's will when it's difficult. How much do we need that in our lives? I was talking to some new members, going to be new members this week, and just talking about the ministry of prayer. And that really, as your pastor, as the elder session, the ruling elders, one of the, the main things we can do for you is pray for you. Ministry of the word and prayer. We try to be faithful in that. Sometimes it's just mentioning your name. Other times we can, we can take some time and work through the text and pray the text for you. But you would do that for yourself and your fight against sin and the, the confusion, the frustration of life, knowing what, to, what comes next, where to turn. And sometimes we do everything and we realize our wisdom is limited. Our strength is very limited, but we don't turn to Christ in prayer. So we're instructed here in Jesus' own life to turn to him in prayer. But now the story moves out to the disciples, as you heard read for you, out on the water. It says that they are being tormented by the wind. This idea of it's working incredibly hard and it being completely futile. In their own strength, doing all that they can and it just getting them nowhere. Yesterday morning, I was doing some yard work at our house. And so doing, well, I was getting ready to mow. And we have this little inflatable swimming pool and like, well, if you were at the picnic, you saw it. It's pretty nasty. And like every couple days, it just turns real green and brown from the kids jumping in and out and in and out and in and out. But there's enough water, I just can't dump it out. So I have this little sump pump. So I dropped it in there, ran the hose from it. And then while that was happening, I thought, well, I'll weed eat, do some other things. I did some other work, came back, and the pool is like not going down at all. 
So I look at the end of the hose, it's still flowing out. So, okay, I'll keep working because I need to get this pool out of the way before I can mow. I happen to turn around the corner and there's Ira, our youngest, and he's standing on the edge of the pool holding the hose so it's going into the pool. So it's winding all the way around and he stands there just holding it, filling the pool with water. It, that was some futile effort on my, no matter what I was doing, I was getting nowhere. I think it's a picture for us, the disciples here in the storm with their greatest effort being tormented, being completely futile in their effort. Have you ever felt like that in life? Again, Jesus puts us in these storms. We find ourselves in these storms so he can reveal himself to us in ways we just don't see when we're not in the middle of this frustration, in the middle of this futility. And so here they are, and Jesus sees it, the fourth watch of night, it says, so that's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. Jesus sees what's taking place, and he starts walking towards them, and he walks on top of the water to get to them. If you look at verse 48, it's kind of an odd little way it says it here. It goes, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then 48 says, he meant to pass by them. Does that strike you as weird when you first read it? Okay, he sees they're struggling out on the water, so he's going to go to help them, but then he's just going to walk past them? He's going to sneak by them? It's almost like that picture, you know, you're in the store, you see someone who you don't really want to talk to right now, so it's like, head down, I'll look over here, and pretend like, you know, we don't make eye contact. Is that what the Lord's doing here? Is just speed walking past them? Well, that's obviously not the case, and so as we step back, we look back, and really this becomes a central part of the text. The Lord passing by is language that is used often in the Old Testament. And it highlights really significant moments of God's revelation of himself to his people. When they're in the midst of hardship, when they need encouragement, when they need to know my God is present, when they need to know my God's promises are true to me, when they are struggling and God reveals himself to them, the language used is that he passes by them. You remember Moses, Exodus 33 and 34. He, he wants to know, is God still with them? Is God going to, to give them success, to lead them through the wilderness into the land of Canaan? And he says, I just, I need, to, I, I need some encouragement. I need to see you. I need to know that you're actually here and you're, you're with us. You remember the response in Exodus 33 there. Moses says, please show me your glory. Verse 19, God responds, I will make all my goodness pass by you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The Lord's there in all caps. That is, I'll declare before you my name, Yahweh. Yahweh, the I am, the great I am. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful. Later in Exodus 34, you see that Moses is placed in the cleft of the rock, and Jesus, as he goes by proclaiming his name, says that he passes by Moses. And Moses catches the trailing glory because he could not handle the full vision of God. 
We see this again later on in, on Mount Horeb. First Kings, you read about it with Elijah. Elijah is, is being chased by the, the, the goons sent out by the wicked Queen Jezebel. And he's in a cave and people are being, the people of God are, have either abandoned God or they're being killed for their belief. And Elijah finds himself hiding in this cave and he starts, you know, maybe we would say he earned it, but kind of throwing a pity party. And he's just saying, well, it was me. I'm the last person who's faithful. I'm the only one who cares about you and is still, still doing what I should. R.C. Sproul, I've heard him call this the Elijah complex. When you feel like you're the only one in doing ministry and cares about what's good, you feel all alone in it. And that's sort of where Elijah is. In 1 Kings 19.11, God says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold... The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks that were before the Lord. It passes by, declaring his name, the I am, powerful, compassionate. We see it again later in Job. Job, if you remember, is facing this excruciating suffering in his life. The questions are asked, how can I be receiving this for the Lord? Is this, is this fair that I'm receiving this from the Lord? And then the answer comes pouring out, showing the difference between God as creator and humanity and the vast difference and summarizing sort of that argument of how wholly different and set apart God is from his creation. It says in Job 9, speaking of God, he alone who stretched out the heavens and trampled upon the waves of the sea, behold, he has passed by me. <clears throat> if you're unfamiliar, in Scripture, God, God in the Old Testament, God cannot fully reveal himself to fallen humanity. They, they can't stand with, they could not be in the presence of that sort of holiness and live. And so he reveals himself in these sort of veiled and, and shadowy ways. And we call it a theophany. Again, not, you don't need to know that term exactly, but call it a theophany. So theos, God, phanos, to make manifest. God is making himself manifest, making himself known in some sort of way, in this veiled sort of shadowy way. If you remember the story of the burning bush in Exodus 3, he reveals himself to Moses in that way because Moses is lacking courage and doesn't know what the mission God is sending him on. And God says, I will be with you. And so we have these sort of shadowy, mysterious ways in which God is revealed. Only here, when Jesus passes by his disciples, it's not a shadowy revelation. Here, the God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable face to face, is now passing by the disciples as Jesus of Nazareth, as God incarnate. It is a clear declaration by Mark that Jesus is God in the flesh. In his revelation of the glory, Jesus shows his glory, shares the compassion of the Trinity that he extends to those who are poor in spirit, and he extends to the disciples who are stuck here. If you remember back in Mark chapter 4, 
They're on, the disciples are in a storm again this time. And that one, Jesus is asleep on the boat, if you remember. And they wake Jesus and he calms the storm with a simple word. And they ask the question, who is this? Who is this? Well, here, that question is answered. Look at verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That's his declaration. It is I. There's a couple ways that you can say, you can make that language in Greek. A couple ways of, of stating it. There's sort of a bit of an uncommon way of saying it. John does it often in his, uh, uh, in his gospel account. If you remember those statements in John, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am the door. And there's two word, two Greek words. Again, you don't need to know these Greek words, but ergo eimi, ergo eimi. Well, Mark uses the same words. If you were to take the word Yahweh and say it in Greek, it's ergo eimi, I am. He's taking the name of Yahweh God. When he says, take heart, it is I, he is saying, take heart, I am. What the disciples need in that moment is the presence of God and the promises of God. They're floundering. They don't know what to do next. They're stuck. God says, Jesus says, take heart, have courage, be encouraged. I am. In our lives, we often find ourselves in that proverbial storm. Just, we're not sure where to turn next. We're not sure what to do next. Where do the answers come? Where do we find our hope? Where do we find our identity? Where do we find our peace and our encouragement? And we can look everywhere for that confidence. The scripture doesn't say, take heart, you're going to get that raise at work. It doesn't say, take heart, you're going to get into the school that you wanted to. It doesn't say, take heart, uh, I'm going to mend that relationship that's difficult for you. Take heart, uh, I'm going I'm to heal you of that sickness. Take heart, you got lots of likes on that Facebook post. And yet, if we're honest, how often are we looking everywhere for, okay, I need some peace, I need some encouragement, I need some joy, I need some affirmation. Where do I turn? Where do I look? Well, I look here, I look here. No, it says, take heart, I am. God Almighty is with you. His presence is with you. The eternal I am, the self-existent one, who's before all things and after all things, who was and is and is to come, the great I am, the one who goes before you, the one who follows behind you, the one who holds you in the hollow of his hands, the one who promises to provide for you. The great I am is with you, and he is for you. He says, be encouraged. Don't quit looking other places. Quit, quit looking everywhere else for a little bit of peace and a little bit of joy and, and for your identity. Take heart. Be encouraged. Know this. I am. 
and I am for you, and I am with you, and my promises in Christ are true for you. Isn't that some what we're declaring in the what God is declaring in the waters of baptisms we just saw? Take heart, I am. My promises are true, I am with you. And you see, the, the disciples, they don't learn that lesson if they're just having a good day fishing on the shore. They learn that lesson in the midst of the storm because they have to look outside themselves. And they see, okay, everywhere I'm turning for answers, I don't find them. Where do I take heart? We take heart in Christ, in his presence with us, in his promises to us, and what the name I am means, that he is sovereign. And he indeed is before us, is behind us. He was, he is, he is to come. And an unchanging God who before you, behind you, is, was, is to come. He stands for us because he's given us his son, Jesus Christ. So in the middle of the storm, Jesus takes the initiative. He goes to his disciples who are struggling and he tells them, take heart, I am. As you continue on there, you see that his disciples didn't immediately pick up what was going on. It's easy to be a little judgmental of the disciples. As you, as you read it, it says verse 51, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Again, worth noting that it's when he gets in the boat that peace comes. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. That is the previous mirror. They, they still don't understand the mission of Christ as, as coming as the bread of life. They still don't understand that this is God in human form, come as a suffering servant. This mission still doesn't completely make sense to them. And we see in this that there is a difference from being astonished and having faith. There's a difference of being impressed, of being moved, of of thinking something is neat, and of being filled with faith. The disciples here are astounded, and yet their hearts are not filled with faith in this moment. Again, encouragement to us, because we find ourselves in that boat often. And yet we see Christ does not give up on them. He moves to those final verses And you see him now going, teaching, casting out demons. If you're new with us, that little noise is pigeons walking around on the roof. I just thought I would tell you that in case you're wondering if the sky is falling. That is not the case. So Jesus continues to show his identity to them, his deity, as he goes out showing his kingdom authority and power and healing people, healing the sick continuing we looked at this slightly but just a comment to close our time up here together we need to get a category or we need to to become comfortable with confident in this idea that God's grace God's presence which is always active in your life is not always just a refreshing cool drink of water. 
God's grace in your life doesn't always equal immediate circumstantial relief. It doesn't always mean you get the answer just as you ask for it. Just because there's difficulty around you doesn't mean that God has abandoned you, that his presence is no longer with you, that his promises aren't true for you, that he ceases to be the I am. That's not the case. And we know that God is gracious always at all times to us. And we see with the disciples, we see as this is taking place, we, we learned of it even last week as the disciples wanted rest and they just they kept having to move forward. That, that God's grace sometimes comes in uncomfortable ways. It sometimes comes with some unknowns. It sometimes doesn't come with immediate relief or in the way that you ask for it. And that doesn't mean that God is that God has abandoned you or isn't being gracious to you. We need this, this category for, for this sort of uncomfortable type of grace in our lives. Because it's in those moments where our hearts are revealed, in the discomfort, because we're going to turn somewhere for answers. We're going to cut, turn somewhere for peace. We're going to turn somewhere for, uh, for assurance in our identity to be, to be confirmed in something. And God uses those moments so we can see we need to look outside of ourselves and all of these empty idols that we put to replace Jesus are just that. They're shallow and empty and we need to turn to the great I am. And so if you feel like, man, I've walked through my share of trouble. (laughs) I'm ready for like clarity and good times. Yes, you can pray for that. But don't deny God is being gracious in the midst of it because what you need most is to turn to the great I am. To look outside your own self for strength and peace and to turn to the God who is there, whose promises are true, and who is for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for... Jesus Christ, Lord, that indeed you have made yourself known in the suffering servant. And Lord, we share in his accomplishments and his righteousness by faith. Lord, for those here who maybe this is foreign to them, these ideas of the righteousness of someone else, of even categories of sin and a savior. Lord, I pray you begin to do a work in their heart. May we be able to follow up with them and to see these truths make sense. But Lord, we pray you would light a fire in their heart now. For those struggling in the storm and just not turning to you, Lord, might they be encouraged this morning to take heart. I am that God's presence is with us and his promises to us are sure and he is for us. Lord, we'd find joy, we'd find identity, we'd find peace, even if the storm doesn't completely cease. I'll give you just a moment. If you consider God's word in your own heart and mind, we'll respond corporately together.